Welcome to the Great Unknown, Global Cultural Explorations. We venture into the unknown and discover treasures that we can bring back to share with you. Welcome to the Great Unknown with me, James Harris. And me, Wolf O'Neill. Uh, we're here because we would like to find out more about the world, challenge ourselves to expand our horizons, and share our discoveries with you. We're not asking where places are anymore. What we should be asking is, what's the world all about and how does it work? This is the map of the Great Unknown, and we're going to fill in some unexplored areas. And we're going to do that by looking at culture, art, history, entertainment and literature, and that's just for starters. Share your discoveries with us as well. Uh, please do. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Great Unknown Pod. You can also email us at thegreatunknownpod at gmail.com. And we're also on Twitter at Great Unknown Pod. So we can also be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, Blueberry, Pocketcast. We're everywhere, any of your favourite apps. And we are also hosted by our brilliant hosts, Podbean, and they have an app as well. So if you enjoy the podcast, please, please do subscribe and you'll get each new episode automatically delivered to you when they're released. And if you're feeling extra generous, leave us a review and a rating so more people can come and join us and have some fun. Yes, please. <laughs> so since the last recording, Wolf, what, uh, what, what have you been up to? What's, what's been tickling your cultural fancy? Well, the only thing that immediately comes to mind is the tickling that we did together uh, <laughs> when we went to Gajira. Yeah, it was a cracking gig. Uh, if you've not heard of them before, they're a heavy metal band from, I think, Bayonne in France. And they are just mind-blowing. Very unusual for me in terms of their lyric lyrical focus. It's a lot of themes about climate change, and there's a lot of sort of geography <laughs> kind of lyrics, I think. Like, their album's called Magma, and then one's called From Mars to Sirius. I was really impressed by how much fun they were having while burning the audience's face off with the intensity of their music. <laughs> yeah, almost literally as well with the pyro as well. There was pyro, there was um, confetti cannons and everything. Not stuff you I'd traditionally... blow up whales yeah. around the audience. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was an awful lot of fun. And it's not... I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily associate heavy metal with being fun. They think it's kind of like dark and serious all the time. But it was just... It was so much fun. And they played so intensely and with such enthusiasm that you just felt like so happy being there it was it was lovely yeah it, it was honestly incredible and they were really they worked really well as a unit and their timing was brilliant and i think we have a little clip that we can play for you as our sound of the week Isn't it great that you can hear the you can hear the crowd singing along with the riffs there? I absolutely love that. It's uh, it's a big thing that we love, I think, from Iron Maiden when you know when there's a crowd sing along. It just ah, oh, it just feels great. Uh, what else have you been up to, James? Like apart from that one time we hung out and went to that gig, <laughs> uh, what other things have you been doing? Uh, the big thing for me actually has been the Cricket World Cup, which has been taking place in England for the last uh, six weeks or so. I finished about a week ago. And when you say you like cricket, a lot of people just look at you like you're a bit mad and, you know, how boring is cricket? But it's the world's biggest sport because of it being played in India and Pakistan and places like that. Nearly two billion people 
which is crazy. And it's, so it's huge. And the enthusiasm for it, particularly in places like India and Pakistan and Afghanistan, countries that don't normally get involved with other major international sports, it has a really unique flavor to it. And I've, I've really, really loved that. And once you get into it, like cricket is a really enjoyable game. It's a, like any sport, it's a kind of metaphor for life kind of thing. Um, but the main thing was just the joy of those countries, like particularly Afghanistan. So the Afghanistan cricket team, they basically didn't exist like 10 years ago because obviously everything that's been happening in Afghanistan for, you know, in modern history, they, they, I think their main international pitch was this dry, dusty kind of field. And 10 years later on, they are competing. They're one of the top 10 nations in the world and they are competing and they have cricket being played all over the country. They have amazing new pitches and facilities and they have stadiums they want to play international cricket in in Kabul which would be an amazing thing that's an amazing goal to work towards and they have men's and women's cricket as well just a really powerful story seeing these guys and a lot of the actual cricketers for Afghanistan first took up cricket whilst they were in refugee camps in Pakistan so there are guys in the team now and all the backroom staff as well and the supporters, they've come to it, a lot of them, in refugee camps. And now they're competing in a World Cup. I mean, that's crazy. It's just, it's a it's a beautiful story. And that's something that I've been really happy to enjoy over the last few weeks. That's amazing. I'm actually so disappointed that I didn't get to see any of it, specifically the final, because everyone I know who doesn't watch cricket all got around the television during that day and watched what they then came out and said was like the game changer that converted them to the sport. And I was working the whole day. I mean, I was with somebody, a New Zealander, who was looking up updates on their phone as it was happening in the last few minutes, which was kind of fun. <laughs> it was so the final was England, New Zealand, and it was possibly the greatest game of cricket ever played. Like that is being said by commentators and writers about cricket. And I've been following Are they all British commentators saying that? No, it's from across the world. I mean, basically, if if you don't know, the the game was tied. This is crazy. After six hundred balls have been bowled, have exactly the same score, two hundred and forty one each. Then they go into a super over, which is six balls each, and they were tied again. They could not be separated. And by some really weird quirk of the laws, essentially England won. But it's amazing that you can tie in football one all. Like that's that's a relatively low score. But to tie at two hundred and forty one apiece is amazing for starters. And in the World Cup final, like the intensity of the drama was just amazing. And I just, I was listening to it in uh, a Vietnamese vegan restaurant in Berlin and everyone around me was just like, what are you listening to? Why are you so interested? And just, I I was like, I don't care. I was just engaged. So it was, it was an amazing game. Um, Yeah. Cricket's been a beautiful thing the last few months. Wow. Awesome. Uh, The only other thing that happened to me, I just suddenly remembered is, and uh, if this comes up, maybe it'll be a sound of the week. I ended up bumping into a few NFL, well, one NFL player while I was hanging out outside uh, Tower Hill. And yeah, you sent me a picture. I didn't know who the guy was, but apparently he's an absolute legend. Oh, he's easily one of the best uh, D linemen playing in the sport at the moment. And he's a very prominent Chicago bear. And he's going to be crucial if they uh, manage to push towards the Super Bowl, which they're going to try and do this year. The main thing is, though, that I, I might, I probably will appear on their website sometime close to the October game day. Uh, and it might even play like in the stadiums here, which is really bizarre because I was just offered the cheapest pint of beer I could possibly get. And now I'm also hoping to secure tickets 
via the returns for the staff. So I'm going to keep in contact with their head of marketing and uh, see what happens. No way. That's amazing. That's going to be so cool. Uh, we might even, I was thinking we could, we might even do an episode about the NFL, about American football in general at some point, because I know relatively little and what I do know comes from you anyway. So I'd be fascinated to learn more because I got into it when we watched that legendary game, the Super Bowl, when the Eagles won, which is also an absolute classic game. I think, yeah, that's might be something we do around about October time. If you do go to the game, that would be really cool. We'd love to find out more about it. Uh, we're going to move on to this week's topic pretty shortly. The only thing is, uh, what I just wanted to do was laugh at you <laughs> about last uh, last time out. And I have no idea what you're referring to. <laughs> I think you said that Everest was 8,000 feet, uh, which would make it quite short considering it's 8,000 meters, which is just a critical kind of difference there. So. Slip of the tongue. Well, thank you for publicly embarrassing me. Well, you know, you did it to yourself, so... What can I say? But let's move on to this week's topic. What, what is this week's topic? This week's topic is time. So we came to the topic of time just because I'd had this little quote in my mind. We were sitting in this little celery bar in London just trying to think what it, to do. Wait, a celery bar? So they just serve <laughs> celery? A cellar type bar is what oh, I meant, I but now I, I see. Yeah, a cellar. It's probably going to happen sooner or later in London. Celery, very healthy. Um, we were sitting in this bar, and there's just been this quote that's been on my computer and in my mind for a while. And the sort of florid language of it is is quite amazing. And I said it to you, and we thought, time. The quote is this week's short idea. So this is a quote from Sir Walter Scott who we came across, actually, when we were talking about romantic poetry in mountains. Take it away. One hour of life, crowded to the full with glorious action and filled with noble risks, is worth whole years of those mean observances of paltry decorum in which men steal through existence like sluggish waters through a marsh without either honour or observation. Pretty strong words there. He, he has an opinion. The idea of an hour and what's relevant within a time span of life or an hour sort of got us thinking about how we perceive time. And that's what made us interested. So we're going to talk to you about time this week and look at it in science, in film, in all sorts of different culture. And just try and have a little look about how time makes a difference to our lives. So we're going to start out by looking at science and you've been doing a lot of research on that. Yeah, this is the logical starting point, uh, at least for me. So, with time, how did we get to where we are? First, there was Isaac Newton. I mean, obviously, there was people before that, but the key point is that Isaac Newton changed our understanding of time. He believed that absolute time, also known as Newtonian time, existed independently of any perceiver and moved along at a constant pace throughout the universe. It kind of existed outside the universe and was sometimes referred to as this universal clock. Yeah, but, the idea of this clock was that it was this great artificial thing hanging in the sky, or maybe even a natural thing hanging in the sky, that the entire universe was connected to and had the same experience of that time. Yes, and everybody believed this for the longest period of time. But in 1905, Albert Einstein came along, and he began to publish and develop his theory of relativity which in 1916 he then published the general theory, which is this kind of an improvement. The theory of relativity changed the world forever, just like Newton did beforehand, and he proposed that time was in fact an integral part of the universe alongside space 
and that these were not independent but were flexible and relative. So that time is one dimension of space-time, which is four-dimensional. And generally now, modern physicists regard time not as passing or flowing, not this constant external force, but as something that simply is, a force that we can impact upon and can impact upon us, and as an integral part of our universe. So scientifically, time is really bloody complicated, basically. And we're going to come back to that perhaps a little bit later on. But Our goal today is not necessarily to understand the theory behind time in the way that the world's greatest physicists do, but just to uh, get a flavour of it. I think that's probably for the best. Uh, so what we can do, though, to understand time a little better is just to talk about how we practically use it in a day-to-day life, which involves clocks, calendars. So you were also doing some research on how we started this idea of time. Yes. So chronometry is the study of accurate time measurement. This is predominantly done in two ways, as you've already mentioned, clocks and calendars. Clocks are short-term, calendars are long-term. Makes sense. 12-hour clocks date back to sort of the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, where they came up with the sexadecimal system, which uh, where 60 is your base number for counting purposes. So you have 60 seconds in a minute, you have 60 minutes in an hour. Okay, and that's from around sort of 2000 BCE. Yeah, that's an interesting one because the 60, the number 60 seems very unique, particularly to hours and minutes, but it's just an ancient system that we've carried on with, basically. Yep. Uh, And then the hours on clocks actually used to vary. The daytime hours and nighttime hours, they were equal to each other, but not equal between day and night. And they changed with the seasons, as would make sense. And not every day starts at the same point in time. In different cultures, days start at different points. So for some ancient Babylonians, the day would begin at sunset, which is actually something that some Orthodox Jews and Muslims believe now. So how have we progressed from from then to now as well, while still retaining those things? In terms of measuring and telling the time, we created sundials, which would use the heavens, uh, and they were weather dependent. Uh, They would work at You could have a nighttime one or a daytime one, but if the sky was cloudy, you couldn't see anything. Uh, We developed water clocks where they would regulate water flowing from a specific device or into a device, and that would allow you to count time rather than tell the time. Then they developed candle clocks, which burned down certain increments past the time. We had hourglasses. Then mechanical clocks came along. These were independently created by a variety of cultures across China, the Middle East, and Europe, at sort of all the early Middle Ages. Uh, This was roughly when the 24-hour clock, equal-hour clock, came in as well, which is in the 14th century. And then eventually we progressed onto atomic clocks. These are the most accurate clocks that we have available. And they use the frequency of electromagnetic spectrums to regulate the timekeeping. Mechanical clocks are often what we imagine as being like your clock hanging on the wall and your watch and things like that. And they're influenced by mathematics. The more we understood the momentum of a pendulum and how that was developed then we could work out how to incorporate that into clocks and measuring time. So what about, so that's that's brought us up to date with clocks. What about calendars? So calendars are astronomical cycles. Interestingly, the weeks is a purely administra- administrative aspect that was added in. They aren't used, they aren't required. So they start on a significant date. This could be the founding of Rome, the supposed birth of Christ, if you look at the Gregorian calendar, or the date of creation for the Hebrew calendar. 
They're synchronized to the sun or the moon, but cannot perfectly match both. And they require leap days or leap months in order to calculate for the errors that arise. The oldest known calendar is from Scotland, um, when there was sort of there were these twelve pits in an arc on the Earth. While the Sumerian calendar is the earliest written one, the Babylonians added the weeks onto this one. And then in early Mes- uh, Mesoamerica, they uh, developed kind of religious and astronomical calendars that which had sort of eighteen months in a year with twenty days per month, showing you the kind of arbitrary nature we associate with these numbers. Julius Caesar made huge reforms that led to the solar calendar in Rome, which was called the Julian calendar, and then Pope Gregory improved upon this in fifteen eighty two and the Gregorian calendar was created. It's really interesting, I think once as soon as we move past science, we've already discovered that clocks and calendars are based an awful lot on our own perceptions of the world around us and how it impacts us rather than being a universal constant and different cultures have created them in their to most benefit their own lives and systems and their beliefs so they're all slightly different looking at clocks and calendars we actually saw a really interesting exhibition a short time ago there's a sort of legendary piece of video art about clocks called the clock by Christian Marclay and it was on at the Tate in London a short time ago and this was a piece that pieced together lots of different bits of particularly Hollywood films and how how does it work so it's a 24-hour installation so the film starts I think it's at 10 o'clock in the morning with clips of watches at 10 o'clock in the morning or clocks of all sorts and it progresses through and the the clocks within the the film actually match the time that it is in reality. So when you're watching it, you can tell the time by what's on screen. The two things that most interested me about it were the fact that it was far more enjoyable and easy to follow than I predicted. And that I had plans that day and I was able to not check my watch because the film was telling me the time (laughs) and I could leave at the time that it came up on the screen. I really liked the way that certain events seem to happen at certain times of the day sort of 9 30 in the morning loads of people would freak out and be like shit i'm late for work and then apparently about 4 30 loads of people wanted to rob banks for some reason so that's the first kind of cultural concept we wanted to explore real time the time that the viewer is experiencing so it's particularly a thing in film run lola run and high noon are the two films we're going to be looking at a little bit more They're not necessarily exact real time, but very close approximations um, of an experience of time lived in the present. So High Noon, for example, is a 1953 film uh, directed by Fred Zinnemann. Starring Gary Cooper. Starring Gary Cooper, who is a marshal who's about to leave town with his new Quaker wife, Grace Kelly. And And Jeff Bridges' dad is in it. Lloyd Bridges? Yes. Yeah, he's great. Isn't he also in Airplane or something? Yep. Yep. Brilliant. Classic actor. Essentially, a, a guy that Gary Cooper put away into prison is coming back into town on a 12 o'clock train and he hears about this. So he has 90 minutes to figure out what he's going to do. And he initially runs away and then he stays and he has to convince people to try and help him take on Frank Miller, I believe it is. Run Lola Run is a German film from 1998 by Tom Tikwa. Essentially, Lola's boyfriend Manny has messed up uh, a drug deal that he was meant to be running and he's lost a hundred thousand marks it's like sixty thousand dollars and she has to he calls her up and he's like help and she has to get him a hundred thousand marks and meet him in 20 minutes or he is done for so but this film has a completely different structure right totally. it uses real-time 
differently. It does those 20 minutes. And then at the end of those 20 minutes, when she reaches him and events come to a climax, it then starts again. And it does it three times. So it replays this same 20-minute real-time narrative three times over with differing events and consequences within it. What I wanted to talk about was the idea of, in cinema, the language of time. And there's two brilliant Russian words that can be applied and it's a very film theory kind of thing but we can we can look at that as a as the concept that will help us and they are fabula and sujet i'm gonna pronounce that terribly of course but essentially fabula is the chronological events of a story and sujet is the events of that story in the way they're presented as a narrative okay yeah. and so for example fabula is how i think we conceive our lives when we think about them on, on a linear level that time passes from a beginning point towards an end point but in film you can do this thing the sujet where you can mix up the narrative and you can change it around to tell a story you adjust time to have an effect and what's interesting both of these films have little bits that exist outside that real time as well in high noon there's a flashback and in run Lola run there's flash forwards what do you remember of flashbacks and flash forwards in in those films? Well, I actually weirdly was thinking more about pop fiction, just on a side note, in terms of one of those key examples of kind of non-linear storytelling, and how we like to um, flash forward and flash back to create tension, to expand on our understanding of characterization. Usually, the flashback reveals information that we we want the audience to know, but we don't know how to tell them in the current setting but that's vital to understanding their, their current decision-making and their arc. Starting in the present and then jumping back to the beginning is a really good way to set up a problem, maintain tension, and then kind of lead us towards that. So there's various different kind of narrative uses for it. Exactly, and how you tell the story impacts on your understanding of how that story is playing out. So the flashback in High Noon is there's just a picture of a chair and it's the chair in which frank miller sat whilst he was being convicted and sent to prison basically and it flashes back just to, it has the picture of the chair and just the words of him shouting i'm going to come back and i'm going to get you and so when gary cooper looks at that chair he experiences that particular piece of time again and that's what plays on his mind and then you as the viewer feel that as well so whilst you're living in the present you're also experiencing the past at the same time. What's really interesting about this is the idea that objects, smells, locations, uh, anything that can trigger one of our senses is linked to memories, is linked to the past, and you're almost temporarily transported through time by these signals to experience a past event relive it remember it in different ways so this works with um the madeline example in uh from by proust or which is more probably relevantly uh referenced in ratatouille yes, when yeah. the food critic takes um has a bite of the ratatouille and is immediately transported back to childhood memories which were like locked away by the taste and this happens to us all the time you're you won't think about something for years and then you will smell something and you'll instantly be reminded of past experiences which you almost wouldn't have been able to voluntarily recall. 
in Run Lola Run, it's interesting you talk about objects because in the first segment, she is handed a gun by Manny and she doesn't know what to do with it. And he tells her to flick the safety and then she knows how to use it. In the second segment, she grabs a gun herself and some guy says, you don't know how to use that. And she flicks the switch because she does know how to use it. Now, what's interesting about that is you can see that as time being lived over and over again. And it's a lot of ideas about determinism and free will. And, or like kind of Groundhog Day? Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, like learnt from reliving experiences. Or you could just see it as that it's a slightly different narrative. In in that world, she just decides that in that moment, in that emotion, she knows that she can use it. Okay, so she's maybe less frightened and is more confident. So just goes with it. Exactly, yeah. Okay. But it it asks interesting questions. The whole film asks interesting questions about our control of time. And the most memorable phrase in it is where Lola is, spoiler alert, dying, and then has a flashback and just says, stop. <laughs> and she essentially stop, stops time. She stops time and restarts the, the process again. And then she does the whole thing again. The other thing that happens within those different three segments is the people she comes across they have then flash forwards and they have wildly different options like for example in one she bumps into a lady and she then becomes a crack addict and dies terribly and then in the next one she doesn't quite bump into her and she wins the lottery and becomes incredibly happy and it's that kind of butterfly effect right and how there are all these parallel universes and how every moment has kind of a million possibilities and each slight interaction not only changes our lives but the lives of everyone around us exactly but also perhaps maybe it's just the possibilities that are inherent and it's nothing to do with those moments in time and the interesting character i think is at the very start of each segment there's her mum who has does not change in any single way the the rest of the segments always change but the mum is just sitting in the apartment having some really dull phone conversation and it's the same every single time so moments in time can be hugely life-changing or they can be completely insignificant. What's the message you take away from it that makes you think about time in your own life? It's not about time, even though the whole construct of the films rely on time and using time. Time runs parallel in those films to what's going on in the story. In High Noon... It's a question of, it's a morality tale of will the townspeople help him? Should he be fighting at all because his wife's a Quaker? Peace and violence. It's these kind of ideas that are compressed into this space. And it's the pressure of the time that makes those decisions challenging and makes that event challenging. In Run, Lola, Run, the story is about how her father doesn't care about her, how much she loves her boyfriend and and what will love do for you it's not about the time but it's about how time impacts that the time is a device time is a device to understand our lives now we've looked at time in the present we wanted to look at the passing of time so if how we experience time as we live it, it impacts us there's a little quote i want to read from a book that you've recommended that we look at which is to the lighthouse by virginia wolf and what was more exciting she felt too as she saw Mr. Ramsay bearing down and retreating, and Mrs. Ramsay sitting with James in the window, and the cloud moving and the tree bending, how life, being made up of little separate incidents which lived one by one, became curled and whole like a wave which bore one up with it, and threw one down, there, with a dash on the beach. 
I'm actually really pleased you selected that quote. It's a little bit similar to this one, but I think they highlight different ideas and it also exemplifies the exceptional writing which is in this book. My quote goes like this. What is the meaning of life? That was all a simple question, one that tended to close in on one with years. The great revelation had never come. The great revelation perhaps never did come. Instead, there were little daily miracles, illuminations, matches struck unexpectedly in the dark. Here was one. I think it's a really fascinating examination of the minutia of everyday life and how important and significant those moments can be and how you can't predict they're going to come but when they do you have to kind of revel in them before we go on to discuss it a bit further just explain tell me a little bit more about the lighthouse okay. by virginia wolf so it's written in 1927 or that's when it's published it follows a family and their guests as they're staying on this house on a hebridean island the isle of sky and the first section covers one day as they debate whether they're going to go to the lighthouse or not but the weather's quite bad then the middle section, and this isn't really a spoiler, conveys the passing of sort of 10 years of time and how the house experiences this passing and all the changes that happen to the family and the world. And then it resolves with another day as more of the family and guests return to the property and they decide to venture out in their boat to the lighthouse, see if they can make it. So a really good way about thinking about this book um, is I found this quote that uh, Virginia Woolf wrote in a 1921 essay called Modern Fiction. And she said that she wanted to show an ordinary mind on an ordinary day receives and organizes a myriad of impressions. So the book is basically examining the very small details from a variety of different experiences, perspectives and consciousnesses, internal and external, as they navigate this day, how they balance all the responsibilities and restrictions of society, the relationships that they hold with other people, they plan for the future, they remember the past, and how it all kind of unites them as they, they carry through this uh, fairly average and ordinary experience. The language for me is really fascinating because it encapsulates that idea. It, it enables the, the reader to look at the internal thought processes of different characters and the language really flows. The sentences are really long. That's Virginia Did you find it quite hard to, to pick up at first? It's really hard. I've been actually trying to read bits of it out loud. And it's really hard to actually make logical sense of when you're reading it. Because it just it's the stream of consciousness that where the, you have these huge long sentences with commas in between that change characters and, and moments yeah. and thoughts all at once. And what you get with that language is that sense of combination of different events thoughts actions combining into one sense of this whole day it generally feels like it's the consciousness of everyone combined in a group experience like a unified yeah. experience of the day rather than one person and i often found i didn't know who i was reading and whose thoughts i was absorbing so i did struggle a bit at first yeah that's a point i i hadn't considered in much detail it's the group experience of that day uh this leads me on to a really great quote they would she thought going on again however long they had lived come back to this night this moon this wind this house and to her too it's they it's everyone this is a unified experience that they are they are sharing 
That's a really good point. It's the use of the word they, actually. It's a communal experience of time. What I'm really interested to know is, how did you, how did the central time-passing chapter influence you when you read it? How did it impact you? So it's really exploring the meaningfulness of particular moments in time and maybe in seeming inconsequential at the time but something that can have ramifications years and years later the fact that within this middle section there are huge moments like deaths that are just thrown in as half a sentence between some commas that did you find those were more impactful delivered in the way that they were for me i felt the impact of these really minor details in the very start of the novel, the the end of the first chapter, uh, I can't remember the name, Charles Tansley walking along with Mrs. Ramsay and he desperately wants to hold her bag and he realises in that moment of thinking about holding her bag how deeply passionately he feels about her and it's this really inconsequential moment of just walking to the town together, can I hold the bag, that has this huge ramification for him And then you have these real world events like deaths and marriages and births and all sorts of things that then, uh, but they're equated in an even way. I really appreciate and was surprised by how much I enjoyed reading about the everyday, nothing big happening, no main plot points, no tension, no, nothing driving the narrative other than people are going about their day, getting ready for dinner, walking on the beach. And that the the huge kind of shocking moments it doesn't waste any time on them you can look at the idea of fabula and sujet again but the sujet is the way in which these small events are written about they become huge representative things about a character did you have a particular moment that really stuck in your head for any character because there's one that i could think of a few things that stand out to me is the decision to delay the trip to the lighthouse when the characters don't realise what's coming. Yeah. And then we realise that for so many of them, they'll never make it to the lighthouse because they delayed. World War One happens and the world has changed completely. All of their lives are shattered. And I really also enjoyed the artist's struggle to create the portrait i think it's of mrs that's Ramsey. exactly what i was thinking yeah. of okay Lily go briscoe and she doesn't want anybody to look at her painting because it's her whole internal world and you get to explore her whole internal world with just a moment of somebody walks quite close to her and will they look at her painting and will that be her whole inner world revealed that you might not ever know about and then they get put in the context of these huge global events the thing I think is most fascinating is how she's she's doing the portrait of Mrs. Ramsay and she's struggling to capture her in the present and do her justice now and it causes her great difficulty. And thinking about how she sees Mrs. Ramsay in that first section and then how she sees her from memory in the final section and how they're slightly different depictions mm. so they result in a slightly different picture because of the changing of time. Or perception of time. What's your overall view then with regards to that on how the book portrays time passing and the experience of time durationally? 
I think it's a personal depiction. I think it's really honest and it's clear about decay and the fact that the weight of a feather isn't is enough to shift the entire fortune of this house. It's so close to falling off the cliff until this uh, cleaner is able to come in and revive the house. And these little changes are all that everything is like. Everything is really on the brink all the time. And it's just these little moments that kind of keep everything held together in that arrow of time that is leading us in a direction. And I think it really just makes you want to cherish the everyday and find those exciting experiences in in the hours. The Bold Arrow of Time by Tame Impala. That's the song that I was thinking about when we were thinking about this episode. Uh, it's interesting to note, I think, that this is a, a very much a modernist text. And so it's very invested in the meaning of these moments and finding meaning in all of those moments that when put together tells a really powerful story. And it's very relevant, I think, to the era of trying to figure out the meanings of life, the universe and everything, particularly with the the trauma, uh, the global trauma of the First World War. It's so powerfully written that it has a, has a great impact, whether or not you're a fan of modernists, literature or art or anything like that i think that's that's what it's doing is it's it's finding that meaning and and i i shied away from reading virginia wolf because i struggle with mrs dalloway so coming back to this and and completing it and really enjoying it i would definitely recommend anyone who hasn't read any or has tried and failed to uh give it another go with this or orlando maybe that's one i'd really like to try yeah absolutely i i really want to read more now and i'd never had before now, I think that's that's bringing us closer to where we're trying to get to with our discussion. And we've just been thinking an awful lot, as as you might have guessed, about how we individually perceive time. And none of it that we've discussed so far is about about clocks and calendars and things. It's all about experience and how we how time affects us as we live. And so a, a concept we couldn't fail to flag up because we, we had to just really briefly is is time travel. It's such a sort of predominant idea in culture. You know, it features in so many different films and things like that. So we, we looked at Donnie Darko, for example. It's an early 2000s indie film in which Donnie has sort of visions and essentially lives almost a different experience of time to other people. I always used to think that it was about physically traveling along a linear timeline. We go from one period of time back to another to avoid events. But through this watching, I think it's I've taken more from it the idea of being able to perceive time differently, alternately, and to be able to experience time in a non-traditional sense. So ideas about how we perceive time is kind of the final thing that we really wanted to figure out. And the film that we want to talk about is Arrival, which was released only two years ago. Uh, well, it's uh, made by Denis Villeneuve. Canadian. Yes, French-Canadian. Essentially, the film opens with the arrival of aliens. We don't really know what kind of aliens. They turn up in their ships all over the world. And Amy Adams plays an, a kind of a language expert. And she's brought in to learn how to communicate with them. And then it kind of follows on from there as they attempt to figure out what the aliens want. We're going to... It's going to be a spoiler, basically, but it's... The the key thing is about that it turns out that their language is what enables them to experience time differently. 
It has an impact on the narrative of the film, which you realise has therefore not been linear the whole way through. What emotional impact do you think perceiving time differently has on us? I think it's naturally frightening and challenging for us because our bodies and minds are built to perceive of time in the way that we currently do. So we understand that anything that has happened is now in the past, we're living in the present, and everything that's going to happen is in the future, and we don't know it. The movie offers up really complex ideas about if you could know the future, would you do things differently? Memory is a strange thing. It doesn't work like I thought it did. We are so bound by time. By its order. That's a key line because it just reminds you that time in, in terms of arrival is cyclical. Generally what we've been looking at is linear time. In this film it's non-linear. The structure of the film and how it delivers emotional impacts and experiences and kind of unites everything together the language of the heptapods and i think it's quite easy to get lost in trying to figure out how somebody in the present can see a future event and use the knowledge from the future event that they don't have now to change time and all this kind of stuff there are some complexities to it but it, the key thing is just to think about time in, in a different sense try and alter our perspective I think that's the that's the thing for me that was powerful about the film. It's when you alter perspectives, when you don't assume that the one perspective, the one reality which we commonly think is correct, is correct, then it actually can bring us closer together. And it's really fascinating, the kind of international cooperation and non-cooperation that's happening. And the suggestion at the end is that when we change our perspectives, when we release ourselves from conventional structure which applies very much to time that we can actually progress as as people as a species i really like the little moment where jeremy renner is presented with the problem of how would he live his life yes if you could see your whole life from start to finish would you change things Maybe I see what I feel after I, I don't know. So Amy Adams has this ability to see all of her timeline, the future and the past simultaneously, experience all of them emotionally and learn from them. And he's still living in a linear sense. It's just a really resounding little moment that reveals a lot about how these two understandings kind of are going to operate differently. And how his kind of fear of the future or worry about the future um, affects how he lives right now. Whereas her knowledge of the future and the past gives her almost more contented life. So it's all about how you perceive time has an effect on your emotional state. Before we, before we kind of ask each other about our own personal experiences of time, we also had some beautiful moments from some poetry from T.S. Eliot that really challenged our emotional view of time as well. So because I was reading Virginia Woolf and we're in the modernists, uh, how could I avoid arguably my favourite poet, T.S. Eliot? 
and went to the four quartets, specifically the first one, Bert Norton. Yes. But the third one also has some really good stuff in it. The general principle of the four quartets is that it's a reflection on time's impact on individuals, on human beings in our everyday lives, rather than a study of this abstract concept and its impact on the universe, the world. It's a very personal, individual one. I think it's lovely that it's language again. It's the expression in language, and it's such a powerful thing in poetry that helps us to reflect on the nature of time and that's that's what the language is doing within this this uh, this poem particularly burnt norton and maybe i'll read two examples and please do i'll be delighted to hear your sonorous tones that the future is a faded song a royal rose or a lavender spray of wistful regret for those who are not yet here to regret pressed between yellow leaves of a book that has never been opened and the way up is the way down the way forward is the way back. So what this is saying to me is the idea that we're already preoccupied with preserving things, trapping things, converting things into memory, worried about the future to the point that we aren't living a life that will be valued in the future. And I think that's... It's a, it's a, it's a sad image and a slightly haunting kind of section. And uh, that kind of connects into this next little bit, which actually comes before it. We had the experience, but missed the meaning. An approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form, beyond any meaning we can assign to happiness. I have said before that the past experience revived in the meaning is not the experience of one life only, but of many generations. That's really powerful. I just... Uh, there's something magic in that language there it's that's a really powerful quote it's a kind of magic <laughs> um so talk to me more about your feelings about that particular quote i think the line we had the experience but missed the meaning is really powerful and the thought that throughout our lives we will have one single experience but at different stages in our life we will remember it in different ways and it will become new experiences remembered differently um like in rashomon altered by reflection but how that isn't necessarily a bad thing but that maybe only later in our lives will we actually understand the experience that we had in the first place it will have new meaning bad things can change good things can change it's a really the event has happened but it doesn't mean to say that the event is dead and lifeless because it's like it's like all of history. It's how we reinterpret events as time, you know, progresses. We we look back on the past in different ways. It's the idea that your past is not in the past. As long as you are alive, any time within your timeline, you can be present in. And the Prescient future stretches out in front of us in a myriad different possibilities, just like in Run Lola Run. And it's all tied into the present and the past. They're all one and the same, all at the same time. And and that also reminds me of when we're talking about how we want to live. He specifically stresses the idea of not living in with the thoughts of the other possibilities that you didn't take, the road less traveled, but about living in the present life that you have in that one line that you have traveled. The other what he is essentially suggesting, which maybe goes against the scientific idea of things, that there are not alternate possibilities for your life. There is only your life. 
So don't be preoccupied with each of those steps, each of those run Lola run moments that that could have been all those thousands of flash forwards. He thinks that would complicate the true experience of existence and prevent you from living. And don't allow the past to be. This is the the positive side of Run Lola Run is don't allow the past to be a fixed thing which dominates your life. It is not a dead thing that has a fixed meaning. It, it is flexible and it changes. It's really it's hard to think of time positively, and so much of our culture is well, about. Did, did the, you think that? Did you think that this was a positive reflection on time when you read it? I thought it was a very meditative one. Yes. I think, and that that's what was so powerful about it for me. It was very meditative because it, there's a certain sense of melancholy because it's something that we all battle with day in, day out is time passing. And and you do feel it in this and you can kind of feel yeah. that the narrator and the author is aware of their age, maybe. Oh, and that's that's a huge thing. Like age is age is but a construct. Imagine if we didn't have age and, for example, we weren't the age that we are and we didn't think about it and we just lived in the present and but we tend to have these conceptions of lifespans like what do you imagine the the life expectancy is in the uk for oh, a man for God. you uh 72 the point is it's it's irrelevant because it doesn't necessarily mean that you have this jar of time to use age is a really powerful thing because you think that we might have a jar of time. This is a metaphor that you used to me when we were talking about it the other day. And Copyright Wolf O'Neill 2019. <laughs> it's a good one as well. Unless I stole it from someone else, in which case don't sue me. <laughs> and you may have another 40 years on earth. You may have another 50. But you, it's very tempting to live your life thinking that you are in a certain period of it and you are on a certain trajectory to think of your life as a linear story from birth to death and to imagine where you are in terms of it's a really powerful idea that i think holds on to all of us in so many ways about like your career and your family life and all these things things you have to have done by a certain age imagine if you just forgot the concept of age because it's a really linear idea of time and for me that's the thing that we've I've really felt when we've been talking about this and researching it and reading these books and watching these films is that time is a something that you experience. It's not an objective thing. It's not Newton's universal clock in the sky. And so hold on to that thought. I, I wanted you I wanted to ask you about how you feel about time having looked at all of this and what it means to you now and how it's how perhaps looking at these things has changed your perspective on it and how you feel about time having looked at all of these things. I wouldn't necessarily say that my understanding of time has changed or my feeling about it has altered. But maybe, and I think that I will revert back to whatever my current state was as this passes from my memory, but that it does make me want to be more present and more active in everyday existence but the irony of all of this is that i've been so preoccupied in planning for this podcast that i probably haven't been living in the present <laughs> while doing this so uh, maybe it'll be better for me when i'm no longer thinking about time and can actually just live i found this i've, I've actually found this really therapeutic uh, it's quite liberating thinking about time in a non-linear context it makes me feel less 
burdened by things in the past and it makes it feel like I can still alter the past in a way by changing my perspective on it as I move into the future and you're right it makes me want to live the present in a when you when you feel as I often do it's one of my like only fears is like old age and dying I mean, that's terrifying especially because you're balding quick son i oh, know i mean i wish i was just going gray like you but i am i am losing that hair and it's that's an a... aged scalp <laughs> i'm gonna put sun cream on it and everything it's a disaster and yeah uh, i feel less burdened by the past and more open in the future like it can be made up of many different things it's not just things that i have to get done i i think maybe the best thing about all of this has been trying to unify the past and the future with the present because it's easy to kind of be going in one direction or the other being pushed forward but trying to hold on to the past uh or throwing yourself quicker than you can run into the future trying to get where you need to be or worry about what you've got to be so it's quite good being able to consider all of it combined. And I would say that probably leads me onto a really good kind of summation of everything that we've talked about, which is the opening of Burnt uh, the opening of Burnt Norton. Again by T. S. Eliot. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. That's beautiful. It just kind of reconfirms the kind of cyclical thing that we've been talking about. The kind of, the actual idea that phys uh, physicists have been talking about now for the sort of last hundred years or so, that in the same way that space exists and we know that it's all out there, and we just can't see it or reach it, that time exists in the same way. And that for our lives, the past, the present, and the future of all of our experiences exist in this realm that we can explore. We just have to go into them. And when you walk through this almost physical boundary of time, you will be able to experience any of it. I, I like how that brought us back to the beginning, though, and the science of time. On, on the In Our Time podcast, Melvin Bragg's Radio 4 program, there's a couple of really great podcasts about time. And the most exciting thing is that the leading physicists think we're waiting for the next discovery that will open up our understanding of it. Because we just, we don't know at the moment. It's Einstein's ideas that time, past, present and future all exist as one is something that we're still trying to explore and understand. We just don't understand time. We experience it, and that's why we've explored it through culture. But isn't it exciting that scientifically, that's a huge thing that might be around the corner? Well, you know, if you ever get to vi uh, visit CERN, which your friend works at, yes, I've, they're yeah. creating warp holes to yes. try and essentially create time travel through these wormholes that they're trying to force into existence and maintain them long enough before they close themselves well they're like f managing to like have particles suddenly in another place without traveling the distance kind of thing it's yeah some really baffling they're science. examining quantum theory and a lot of people do think that maybe the qu quantum realm is how we would be able to time travel 
Let's not try and explain that. <laughs> but if you get to go, you could you could find out. Yeah, more. absolutely. And I think in the meantime, Google what's going on at CERN at the moment, and that will give you some probably better science than and we can. Lastly, to finish, what's maybe the greatest depiction of time manipulation in the history of humankind? Bernard's watch. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, Bernard was able to stop time with his little watch. Thus, Bernard's watch, and he was a he was a boy. Uh, if you had Bernard's watch, what would you do with it? You've got you've got one one thing. Do you know what? I would probably use it to be less angry. I get how does oh you mean stop time every time you're about to shout at someone? Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> I once once something starts to boil my blood, I really struggle, and I would just love to just stop time, and I would just leave work because it's normally at work. Get in my car, I'd go and sit. I'd drive down to the sea, and I'd go and sit at the seashore and just drink it all in for a while and just find that piece that you get out there um, imagine how creepy it would be if you did that but you you kind of forest gumped it and you were away for many years and then you came back and you had like really aged like a full <laughs> full beard really long hair and in the middle of a conversation the world just kind of unpauses and you're just like the crypt keeper they're like oh my god Everyone would think work has really taken it out on you. <laughs> well, you know, there's that saying that like people's hair turns grey overnight. Maybe they've got Bernard's bloody watch. So I would be less angry. That's probably a good thing. What would you do with Bernard's watch? This is maybe not the most important thing, but one thing I'd quite like to be able to do is in a restaurant, a busy restaurant, <laughs> when you're having to decide what you want to eat and the waiter's waiting, I'd pause time, I'd get up, I'd walk around and look at everybody else's meals and check them against the menu so <laughs> i could find genius. the one that looks best and then i could order that one because you're always you know when you're looking at the plates and it comes past you're like is that what i ordered because that looks great but it's not you ordered something else and yours isn't as good i'd always pick the best thing off the menu very wise you're a very wise man sometimes are there any other films uh that you or or books or anything like that, that you'd recommend people have a look at that are about time that might have something else that we haven't talked about today uh other than the red dwarf episode time slides mark my words time is a great healer unless you've got a rash in which case you're better off with ointment (laughs) well thank you for that james Uh, (laughs) wonderful little excerpt you know the time's all well and good thinking about it but you know you've got to be practical sometimes as well sometimes medicine rather than trying to think esoterically about the nature of time yeah, in time slides, they, they nick Klaus von Stauffenberg's uh, briefcase bomb so that Hitler doesn't get assassinated at Nuremberg. Oh, that's why. Okay, that's why. They accidentally mess it up. I think this brings us to the end. Yeah, it's been great. I, I, I didn't expect to find myself saying that I'd found it therapeutic, but talking about it, I actually have. Uh, this is where I charge you now. <laughs> well, I, I thought originally we were just going to do an episode about the herb time. oh i see that was uh that was what uh a friend of mine mike day he he's another podcast he does champions of the earth great one about different music from around the world Uh, it's worth having a look at Uh, it's on mixcloud i think so i'm sorry to mike that we didn't actually do the history of time but it's really delicious and have it with your dinner yeah i hope it's been enjoyable i hope you've uh maybe found some films or books to uh check out if you have any other recommendations really good examinations of time and its kind of impact on us or our impact on it then uh please let us know and we'll keep exploring so come and join us next time uh get in contact with us on our social channels and don't forget to subscribe and you'll get another episode certainly in august september likes shares reviews thumbs ups 
<laughs> if, if you see me in the street, finger guns me. <laughs> well, that's a goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. That's a goodbye from him. We'll see you next time. Thanks Bye. very much for listening. Bye.